Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra as always with James from Gunnar Blog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning, Andrew. Goodly morning. How are you? I'm all right. Yeah? I'm okay. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's it's not coming home for Christmas, but, uh, you know, I, I can live with it. The World Cup is not Chris Rhea, that's what you're saying. Exactly. Right. It's a million miles away from Chris Rhea right now. <laughs> um, well, uh, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, uh, yeah, on go France and William Saliba. Mm. Well, I say and William Saliba, I mean... You know he's he's there, but they're they're hiding him away from us, aren't they? They are a bit. They are a bit. Uh, that might be a, a question we have for later on. I did notice a question about William Saliba a bit later on, but um, okay. we'll we'll maybe ask that in in due course. But um, as an Englishman who owns mm-hmm. a French bulldog, your your house must be quite divided this morning. Is everything okay? Yeah, I know. Splitting the cap. But uh, we've spoken about it this morning at some length and we've found some mm. common ground. Some sort of cross-channel harmony has been struck. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I thought it was actually a really good game. I, I, I kind of always expected, you know, I made France favourites going into that. But mm. uh, I think they were two of the stronger teams in the tournament, actually, probably that came head-to-head uh, in that match. And I think whichever one won it, might have made themselves, if not favourites, and certainly very strong candidates to, to go on and win it. I think pro- probably France are favourites now, um, but it was it was a slightly different sort of England exit to uh, the kind of traditional one. I, I think they were a little bit unfortunate and mm. played pretty well. So it's unusual not to have too many recriminations after an England exit. I don't think they got a, a great deal wrong on the night. I mean. It's the most efficient penalty shootout defeat of England's history, in fairness, isn't it? You know, just the one missed penalty and, and you're gone. Um, yeah, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy either. <laughs> um, no, doubt we'll, no doubt we'll come to that. And I'm sure, listen, there are many England fans listening to this this morning who will be pained by the result because, you know, I've said this before, I think this is maybe the most talented England squad that I can remember for a long time, bar, you know, one or two positions, which I think are a little bit suspect and I think they're mm-hmm. probably obvious to everybody but there is a lot of talent a lot of um, flair and skill and everything else in in this England squad so I'd say that sort of exacerbates the the exit you know as well as the fact that Spain are out Germany are out Portugal are out Brazil are out you know it's not like winning the World Cup is easy in any way clearly but there must have been a sense that, like, if we can beat France, 
then some of the big boys are gone and the the teams that remain, which is to take nothing away from any of them, um, you know, do have their qualities, but also their flaws as well. Yeah, definitely. The draw opened up a little bit, as it did um, in the last World Cup when England ended up in a semi-final against Croatia, who've got back to the semis again. Mm. Um, and I and I think that had England beaten France, as I say, they would have had as good a chance as any, anybody of lifting that trophy. Um, I think that it is a very talented group. Um, and I think sometimes we forget the strength of the Premier League, you know, the, the level of quality that these players are playing at week in, week out. And I think we're beginning to see that now after such a long time translate to the international stage. I think England's tournament performances over the last, you know, six years or whatever it's been have actually been pretty consistent and pretty good. Um, but yes, it will feel like an opportunity missed because, you know, you had a team playing well, in form, decent looking draw in terms of the teams remaining in the tournament. Uh, and it got away from them. And, you know, had Harry Kane scored that second penalty, I don't know, maybe mm. things would have turned out differently. Um, I think they might, it, yeah. I think yeah, they might. Cause... I mean, I think in this, on the balance of playing the second half, it seemed like it was kind of England's uh, to to lose. And then France got a goal out of nothing, really, after a good cross from Griezmann and Giroud got across his man. But, yeah, I think if they'd come back into it, who knows? Who knows? But it it is, uh, I think... <sighs> You know, when you look at the players in that England squad, the ones who perform best in the tournament, um, you know, the likes of Bellingham and Saka, mm. you add in the, you know, Phil Foden, Declan Rice. Um, there is an exciting uh, layer of young talent there. And, you know, in a couple of years' time and at the next World Cup in four years' time, I do think England should be in a, a strong position to challenge. The vagaries of international football and tournament football make guaranteeing anything very difficult. Of but course. And the length a, of time between tournaments as well. You know, a lot yeah, can exactly. happen in four years. So But I think I think there's a good base there. Sure. Um, but yes, I still think in time we may look back on this uh, World Cup as an opportunity missed. Especially if we end up with, you know, a Morocco Croatia final or something like that. Yeah. Which is not beyond the realms of possibility. Nope. It really isn't. Um you know we might talk about those games and those teams now in, in a minute as well. But let me ask you this. When you see Bukayo Saka not get free kicks at a World Cup, <laughs> what do you think as an Arsenal fan? Because, you know, we've spoken about this I don't know how many times. The way that he is fouled and judged not to have been fouled. And, you know, there's some, I'm sure, recriminations over the first France goal. A lot happened. Obviously, between the foul on Saka that wasn't given and the ball hitting the back of the net, nevertheless, that should have been a free kick to England wide, deep in the French half and a, a moment of of danger, you know, a chance to create something from a set piece for England instead. You know, France go up the other end and, um, you know, Pickford's tiny arms can't keep out the shot from uh, Chouamani. So mm-hmm. the the Saka thing, I think, is really quite interesting because... When I've mentioned it, and I've said it on Twitter a few times as well, occasionally you get a bit of pushback from fans of other clubs, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not that I give a single fuck what any of them think or anything like that, and I very rarely respond to any of it, but you can see it in your timeline where you, you know, you're being accused of just being biased towards Arsenal, which, of course, 
I am. Um, I'm an Arsenal fan. Why, why wouldn't I be? But I do wonder if incidents like that and some of the the free kicks that he didn't get in this tournament might open the eyes of fans of other clubs to what we see on a weekly basis um, as as Arsenal fans. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because obviously this isn't a Premier League referee England mm. were dealing with last night or even uh, an English referee. So I, I think it might be slightly distinct. I mean, it's part of a broader picture, but I feel like in the Premier League, what we're watching is a player being refereed in a certain style that almost feels... Um, conscious and deliberate you know mm. like a sense of this is a guy who you know goes to ground easily and we need to watch that and you know I mean you know I'm filling in gaps there but it does sometimes feel like there's if not a directive then at least a consensus on the kind of player Saka is and how that should determine decisions around him maybe I'm being naive but I feel like it's unlikely that memo reaches you know, global referees. Um, and I think that what we saw last night was more a consequence, and which does feed into the, the bigger soccer issues, is a consequence of play style and the type of player he is. And maybe I think in general referees uh, aren't particularly, what's the word, inclined to offer protection to these players who carry the ball a lot, who receive mm. a lot of contact, who dribble at speed. But it was interesting and watching kind of the reaction on social media of people saying, oh, Saka's not getting decisions here. You did feel a bit like, um, I'm trying to think of the appropriate fable. I mean, it would, I guess it would be the boy cried wolf in a way, except there has been a wolf the whole time. They should have believed us from the start. Yeah, what I felt like. there's a big fucking wolf right there and he's nibbling away at his ankles Yeah, every single time. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean I, it, yeah. it was interesting though. And, and as an Arsenal fan, one of the things that really pleased me, and it's something that we've become accustomed to seeing with Saka, is that it never really um, put him down. And actually, I felt like every time they fouled him, it almost emboldened him. Mm. You know, it looked like he he realised, well, this is the only way that they can stop me. And the way in which he won the second, I know the first penalty, was it, for England, um, with the mazy run from the right-hand side was fantastic. And, mm. and we're, we're becoming used to seeing that, you know, Saka receiving a lot of contact, receiving a lot of attention, but nevertheless finding a way to contribute. And the fact that he did that on a global stage, I mean, his reputation sort of internationally grew substantially last night. I think so. I think he was England's best player, to be honest. Um, mm. And I do think that the momentum and the, the dominance that England had disappeared when he went off. Now, he may well have been injured. I saw some people talking about, um, you know, an ankle problem or he took a kick not long before he was taken off. So maybe he was struggling a little bit, but I thought he was England's best player by far. He created that chance for, for Harry Kane in the first half, which I think Kane should score. He went with his right foot instead of his left foot um, and Lloris made a save. Um, but yeah, his reputation is... is I mean, for us, I don't think it can get much higher. But um, when you look at how England players, who has performed consistently over the course of the tournament, I think he's he's right up there. Yeah, and I think he was named England's Player of the Year for, for the last year. So the fact mm. that he's then gone to a tournament, scored three goals, you know, played really well in a quarterfinal, I don't think you can... Uh, sort of overstate the role that these big international tournaments can have in shaping global perception of a player. And I think Saka really, as much as we 
rave about him. I think for people who don't watch Arsenal week in, week out, that was a performance that saw him kind of arrive in some respects. And I think the point about taking him off is interesting. I mean, I I could see a logic for taking him off simply in that he'd been... He had been kicked basically all over the park. Yeah. He was starting to hobble slightly and every foul, you know, probably takes 5% out of you physically. Um, and if you had four or five, maybe you're not the player you were. And England are blessed with depth in wide areas. You know, I thought if Jack Grealish, say, or Marcus Rashford had come on, that might have been a better substitution. I did think bringing on Raheem Sterling, who mm. doesn't come into the tournament in great form. I know he's one of Southgate's, you know, most uh, trusted players, but Sterling on the right, I just didn't think that was the right sub. I think there was a way, England have got such variety of options in wide areas, there's a way you could have brought Saka off and maintained the threat, but I didn't think that was the right way to do it. And that man, Olivier Giroud, scoring scoring the winning goal. Everyone was talking about Mbappe before the game and for obvious reasons, but you know, I said in the blog, I think Giroud could have a part to play in this. And I think what's really impressive about him is the fact that at 36 years of age, he still has the sharpness of mind and the sharpness of movement to find enough space to score the goal that he did. Now, Mm. I also think it's to his benefit that he was playing against Harry Maguire, a player who, you know, has his moments where concentration lapses or, or he's not quite at the level you need a player at this stage of a tournament, uh, tournament to be, um, mm-hmm. you know, look, he's had a, an okay tournament for England, but um, that's one of the positions I think England can certainly uh, do better in or should be looking to upgrade on, but he just gave Giroud enough space to move in and score that header and, and, be decisive to extend his record as France's leading goal scorer. I know we talked about him last week a bit, but I mean, it's it's kind of remarkable what he's doing at his age. Yeah, it is. And I mean, the, the way things have fallen out in such a way for Giroud that this tournament has given him this opportunity. I mean, if you remember, Karim Benzema was selected in the France squad initially and mm. would probably have been playing all these minutes. He had to withdraw and Giroud has stepped back into the fold and it's like, you know, he was never out of it. I mean, he's been really excellent for France. Um, another big goal for him. On they go. And I think, you know, as I said at the top, really, you have to make them probably the favourites now. I just think, you know, the, the level of quality they have, you know, Griezmann, Giroud, Mbappe, um, Dembele. I think, obviously, Argentina have... Lionel Messi is outstanding individual talent, but I think when you look at the, the depth and quality throughout the squad, France are probably the strongest. But of mm. course, you know, people don't retain World Cup. So if they can do that, I mean, it would be a magnificent achievement. It sure would. Um, the quarterfinals, from yeah. an Arsenal perspective, have been good. Um, That's true. I mean, yes, <laughs> I think... yeah. Uh, as much as uh, England English Arsenal fans would have been disappointed to see Saka come off yesterday, they probably would also have found time for a quick sigh of relief that he left the game mm. seemingly without a serious injury Yeah, um, and gets away from the tournament without a serious injury. Well, that's it. And, and Brazilian Arsenal fans will obviously be disappointed at their exit, but at the same time, we get Gabriel Martinelli back. And like two days ago or whatever it was, uh, when did I record the Arscast with Lewis? I think on Thursday... 
we were talking about Saka and Martinelli, right? And if England had beaten France and if Brazil had got beyond Croatia, both of those players would have been at the tournament right until the death because at the very least they would have been involved or their their teams, whether they would have played or not, um, would have been involved in the third and fourth place yeah. playoff at the very least and if not, maybe the final, right? Mm-hmm. So you're thinking about, well, who are we going to play against uh, West Ham? Uh, it's going to be Eddie and Ketty up front and it's it's going to be well, maybe Reese Nelson on the left and Fabio Vieira on the right because you know you you can't realistically expect two players to go all the way in a World Cup and then just come back and play a week later. I don't think you can. I know this is mid-season. I know this is part of the job and and everything else, and it's a a special sort of circumstance where I don't think players need as much time off because obviously the World Cup is not happening at the end of a season, so they need the holidays after a long season and then being away playing a tournament, etc., etc. But I don't think it would have been realistic for those two to be involved in that game against West Ham. And now you're looking at both of them being available, you know, fitness permitting and fingers crossed there are no issues there. They'll get a bit of time off. They'll come back. They'll start training. And, you know, there is no reason, I don't think, why they can't play against West Ham. And that's, you know, I guess the glass half empty part of me was thinking, well, England will beat France and Brazil will beat Croatia. And we're going to have to you know, deal with that when we resume the Premier League. Now, it feels a little bit brighter, and I'm wondering, you know, what your sense of that is, along with the fact that maybe when we play West Ham, we'll have pretty much the, if you want to call it in inverted commas, the first team out there, and the only change might well be Eddie Nketiah in place of Gabriel Jesus. And I know there's an issue there. I know everyone wants Gabriel Jesus to be fit and we all, you know, wish him a speedy recovery, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think there's something a bit more reassuring when you're just changing one piece. Maybe Saliba will be there, maybe he won't. And, you know, you could play Ben White and you could also play Tommy Asu. So nobody's going to be too freaked out about that. But it maybe makes life a little bit easier for Eddie and Kedia to to sort of try and fill the boots of a guy who's been so important for us if the other pieces around him are the pieces that are there week in, week out? I think so. And I think Eddie Nketiah playing in Arsenal's first eleven with Martin Odegaard, Gabriel Martinelli and Bukayo Saka around him is a different prospect to Eddie Nketiah in the Europa League or Carabao Cup with Marquinhos and Reese Nelson. You know, and, and that's not to slight those players, but it is that much easier to step into a a complete team. We saw that with Sambi Lukonga earlier this season when he came in for Thomas Partey, but basically the rest of the team remained the same and he was able to bring his level up accordingly. So I think that's a, a massive thing. You know, um, you mentioned Ben White. He's in Dubai now uh, with the squad. Uh, Thomas Partey is out there. Matt Turner is out there. Granite Shaka, you know, told the press that he flew straight to Dubai. I don't think he's started training yet. Probably he's having a little bit of time off while he's out there, but he'll be with the group soon. Tommy Asu shouldn't be far behind that. Martinelli shouldn't be far behind. Mm. There seems to be a bit of a pattern that when players are coming out of the tournament, they're getting, you know, five days a week um, of time off and then restarting training. Uh, So what's happened at the quarterfinal stage means the likes of Martinelli and Saka could have that and still very easily 
conceivably be ready for Boxing Day. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of about as good an outcome as Arsenal could have hoped for for those players, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, and good to see Ben White there, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I'm not a, any kind of conspiracy theorist, but the fact that his return has coincided with England's exit, um, I don't know if people can put two and two together there, but nevertheless, good to see him out there and hopefully uh, everything is, is A-OK with him. Um did you watch the game on Thursday, by the way? Which one was that? Remind the Leon, the win over Oh, Leon. no, only highlights. Right. Only highlights. Okay. Um, but what were your uh, key takeaways? From- uh, Eddie was good. Fabio Vieira is good. I'm I'm curious, you know, if he can live up to the billing that Mikel Arteta has kind of given him. When he spoke about him a couple of times, he said, look, he didn't have a preseason. He came injured. He will be better in the second half of the season. And if the goal that he scored against Leon is is some indication of what he might bring over the coming months, then that's that's pretty exciting, you know. Um, I thought Leon were terrible, but I thought Arsenal, in many ways, like a second string, a Europa League Arsenal, if you like, were good as well. So, yeah. Um, you know, I think these games, you know, it's easy to sort of dismiss them as the the Dubai Super Cup and, you know, all the nonsense that went on with the penalty shootout at the end to try and win a bonus point and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I get that. But they are important, these games. They're important because this second preseason, if you like, is is unprecedented. So to make sure that we can build fitness and get players back to match fitness as quickly as we can. Um, they, they do have a, an importance. I don't, you know, the results we could lose against AC Milan, we could lose against Juventus. That's not really the main thing. It's about, you know, how, how match ready these guys are when, when we kick off again on December 26th. I think it would be, it would be a bit silly to dismiss these friendly results entirely. When you look at the preseason we had in the summer, and how effectively we played in that period, the results we put together, you know, a hefty thrashing of Chelsea along the way, sure. scoring plenty of goals. And, and I do think we took from that some form, confidence, momentum into the league season. We also ended pre-season with a very settled eleven, one that basically stayed in place for the majority of the first half of the campaign. So I think we've seen very recently benefit that this preparation period can have if you could find stability and find a system that works so I think it is important and just on the physical side I think one thing to consider is that yes Arsenal may be able to field a strong starting 11 against West Ham on Boxing Day but I suppose the real test is going to be to what extent are we able to maintain that once the intensity of Premier League competition resumes? And that's mm. really when we're in uncharted waters, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I think this is where, you know, another aspect of January and the January transfer window uh, comes into play as to how well you can boost your squad to ensure that you have the depth required because it is not just about getting these guys fit. It's about having the the requisite depth, you know? Mm-hmm. Um but before we talk a bit more about Arsenal, let's um, have a quick word about the other quarterfinals in the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Morocco, the first African team to make a semi-final of a World Cup, and it's 
amazing. I thought the scenes at the end of that game were just absolutely brilliant between the players and the Moroccan fans who were in the crowd. Um, I know there's another aspect of the post-game stuff um, with Portugal that people might focus on, but I think Morocco deserve massive credit for the way that they have decided to play in a specific way against you know, two very strong teams in Spain and Portugal and have come out on top in both of those games. Um, to get through to the semifinal of a World Cup beating Spain and Portugal along the way is like nothing at all to be sniffed at, you know? And people, some people, I guess, might say, well, look, that's not the kind of football I want, you know, to see this um, highly focused defensive um, outlook. But like, what are you supposed to do when you're playing teams like Spain and Portugal, whose technical level is, you know, off the charts, you know, technically brilliant teams, albeit with flaws. I think it's great to see Morocco through to the semi-final. It is. I mean, they've smashed a glass ceiling, really, um, as an African nation. Uh, and the scenes, you know, in the stands were amazing. I mean, I think, you know, Morocco, the Arab world are, are behind them too. So mm. they've got a huge groundswell of support in Qatar. They've done it in style. I mean, they've done it against really tough opposition, as you say. They've shown incredible um, diligence, commitment, organisation. Um, you have to take your hat off to them. And I think, you know, nobody would want to play them next. You know, if England had gone through mm. and they were against Morocco, I think they would have found it very hard going against a team who have been incredibly effective Um against other sides with real technical quality. So they've got quality too. And I don't mean to dismiss that aspect of them. When you look at their forward line, you know, there are players there who uh, provide a real threat. And it's great to see, for example, uh, Ziyech playing far better than he ever has done for Chelsea. And mm. um, yeah, is it El Nezri who scored, the, uh, who strike had been linked with Arsenal in the past, I believe. Um but yeah, they, they, they've they been really impressive and what they've achieved is kind of incredible. And I would say the same actually uh, in some respects for Croatia who who do just seem a team that never know when they are beaten. Um, well, to, to reach yeah. consecutive, I think it's consecutive World Cup semifinals, that is really extraordinary. I think. No, it is. You know, because when Brazil scored the other day, I figured that's probably that for for Croatia, you know, because... And they, it felt like a storybook goal in some respects, you know, Neymar yeah, had his moment yeah, yeah. at last. Yeah, Croatia had an amazing chance as well before that, maybe a few minutes before the goal. They had a really, really good chance and, and the guy just blasted the ball over the bar and you're thinking, well, that was your moment. But, you know, what is the population of Croatia? About 4 million people? Mm -hmm. Just maybe the same size as Ireland, there or thereabouts? And what an incredible record. You know, it is, just and they've, they, you know, I mean, they've got a truly outstanding player in Luka Modric. Um, I think we can say that now that he's, I think he's been gone from Spurs long enough that we can acknowledge his uh, quality. And that's obviously been key for them. But yeah, as a team, as a unit, they've been really mm. uh, effective, impressive. And again, you know, they came through a group with Belgium in, um, as did Morocco. Uh, so yeah, they've they've earned their place, and yeah, I mean Brazil. I mean, you, you, I don't know if you watched the Brazil uh, Korea game, but Brazil were 
unstoppable that night and looked like they'd finally clicked. And yeah. to be honest, like it might be a bit of a procession, uh, but didn't prove to be the case at all. No Martinelli, no party, you know? Um, yeah, and I thought it was it. very nice of Alisson to get out of the way of as many of the penalties uh, as he did. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, this is, this is, I guess, why people love the World Cup, right? That things like this can happen. And I think as well in, in the modern game, they're more capable of happening because I think there's, you know, a greater equalization of not necessarily talent, but but sort of, um, how would you put this? I just think the level of players across the board is much higher. Therefore, it becomes easier for so-called smaller teams to cope with teams which have greater talent, if that makes sense, or greater depth, you know, like uh, Brazil, for example, and even Portugal yesterday against Morocco, I think on a technical level, um, Portugal have many more players um, who could and, and who do operate at the, the top of the game, you know, many more players who fall over and dive all the time as well. But that's that's a separate thing. And I think, mm. you know, maybe when people reflect on this World Cup and they think of the games, they think of the shocks, they think of the surprises, they think about the amazing scenes. And, you know, people will say, Perhaps, well, the Qatar World Cup was one of the best World Cups of all time. Look at all this stuff that's gone on. But that's that's exactly the point about the World Cup. Like, it could take place in the fiery depths of hell. And if the football was good, people would love it. You know what I mean? I think so. And I think one of the things that we'll only really be able to analyse in time, and we may never reach a conclusion on it, is to what extent... Uh, these shocks and these upsets are a consequence of the scheduling of the World Cup mm. where it is. Um, you know, I'd be surprised if it didn't have some impact or some say, I, I just mean in terms of the calendar rather than the location. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, listen, that's the, that's why uh, I think sports washing is so effective, particularly when it comes to something like a World Cup, because people do love it as a product mm. and, so inevitably, once it gets going, there's going to be a lot of attention and a lot of focus on the football. I have to be completely honest and say, I it has never, I've never been swept away by this tournament, and that's partly my own availability and the fact I've not been able to watch every single game. Yeah, but it's yeah. not had the grip on me that other tournaments have done, and I don't know how much my sort of concerns and caveats going in have been a part of that. But I can't deny that. On the pitch, you know, there have been some very entertaining games and very entertaining outcomes as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. And um, some interesting semifinals coming up. And, you know, who knows? You, you just can't rule out anything at this point in the tournament based on what we've seen so far. You know, I think it is clear that maybe France are the favourites, but, you know, there's no... Uh, I, I certainly wouldn't put every penny I had on on them winning it because the shocks, um, there could be another one. There could be another one. So yeah. Let's see. Uh, but we may get the, you know, the final everyone's talking about Messi versus Giroud. Um, <laughs> who is the greatest? <laughs> it will be decided. It will be decided. Any thoughts on the um, World Cup departure of Cristiano Ronaldo? Oh, listen, I... I'm no lover of um, 
the Argentine squad's general demeanour. And there are a few individuals in there who really rubbed me up the wrong way. Oh, this is good, because we've got a question about that. So maybe we'll do that in, uh, okay. in a moment but, or two. But, but what I was going to say is that I wouldn't be adverse to them winning it just because I think it's sort of a lovely way of kind of closing the uh, slightly wearisome uh, Ronaldo-Messi debate. <laughs> if, if Ronaldo were to exit as a substitute in tears and Messi were to win it, um, as someone who is very much a Messi over Ronaldo guy, I, I would take some satisfaction from that. Mm. I just thought, you know, the way he reacted to the final whistle, of course you can be emotional when you're playing your final World Cup game, right? Mm-hmm. But the way he just went down the tunnel without a word for his teammates, who are also suffering the pain of defeat, without taking a moment to acknowledge the Portuguese fans who are in that stadium and also feeling the the pain of defeat. And look, I don't expect him to go around magnanimously shaking the hand of every Morocco player because we know that's not <laughs> that's not who he is, right? But the sort of world revolving around himself element of him, it's no surprise, but I thought this was just kind of I thought it was really kind of pathetic to be honest. Um yeah, know. yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, he's a, a guy with a huge ego and reckoning with the end of his mm. elite career um, must be particularly challenging. It's not been a great few weeks for Ronaldo in terms of the fact that he you know, has been released from Manchester United, um, hasn't really had the chances he thought he might do on the World Cup stage. And where he goes next, uh, I do not know. Hopefully... Somewhere very, very far away. <laughs> yeah, I do. I also do not care. It's fair. fired into space, perhaps. Yeah, you never know. You never know um, where he could indeed just revolve around the Earth for the rest of his days. And uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am the sun, he would say to himself as he goes around. Do you think we should take a? Is there anything else um, that we haven't talked about, or like from an Arsenal perspective or from a World Cup perspective that we should touch on in this? Because um, if not, we could move on. I think we've covered most of it off. I'm sure there's questions on a couple of uh, other elements. Okay. Well, look, we'll take a little break here. We will come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer the questions that you send to us on Twitter, at Gunnarblog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. I know I gave a final, final, final plug for the Goodly Morning Mug on the Arscast on Friday, but this is the final, 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 definitely final one. If you want to get one of the mugs, all the funds raised will go to Great Ormond Street Hospital, um, and Our Ladies Hospital for Sick Children here in Dublin. So far, James, I reckon we're going to be able to donate something in the region of €8,000 between wow. those, between those two. So if you're looking for a last-minute Christmas present for the uh, Arsecast fan in your life, what better than to have this state-of-the-art drinking receptacle and you will know that the uh, money raised is going to uh, two very, very good causes. You'll find a link to the to the shop or to the mug in the show notes. So uh, there you go. And thank you so much to everybody. It's uh, it's amazing um, that so many of these mugs are out there in the wild right now. And um, they're going to do a lot of good, apart from, obviously, uh, allowing people to transport their coffee from the kitchen to, you know, the sitting room in, in easy fashion. You'd be a mug not to buy a mug with our mugs on. <laughs> Why didn't we think of that at the start? That's brilliant. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. It's taken me, taken me weeks, that. <clears throat> Sorry, I, I nearly question? choked here. That's fine. Yeah, let's have a question. You go ahead while I catch my it breath. Was be- it was a beautiful uh, <laughs> slogan, so I don't bet. I don't That's what it was. It was choked up here. <laughs> um, okay, here's a good question, I thought, okay. from Benson on Twitter, at Benson1981. Why are we talking about players needing a rest after the World Cup? Saka played four games, 292 minutes. Last year, between November 20th and December 11th, he played five games and 353 minutes. What's the difference? Especially when you consider he didn't need to travel within Qatar because all the games were basically in one city. I guess the difference is the... the the tournament itself and the weight of the importance of the tournament among the players. Mm-hmm. Like physically, I, I absolutely get that probably the demands at the World Cup might even have been, you know, well, as he's pointed out, are lower than if he was playing domestic football. But there's like a change of focus, isn't there, that you are competing for the biggest international football tournament in the world. There is a measure of investment, I'm sure, that goes with that, and you know you will uh, you will obviously feel disappointed if you're if you're knocked out. Um, I think Granit Xhaka, the way he spoke the other day, was really interesting. You know, to say, look, it's disappointing, but I'm going back to do my job and you know get down to hard work again. I think that's probably his coping mechanism, if you like. Mm. Whereas other players are going to feel slightly different or slightly unhappy or disappointed, or it might just take them a, a little bit of time to refocus. And that's why I think it's probably smart that, you know, Arsenal have given the players, what, a week off? The guys who've been at the World Cup, they've given them a week off to just sort of go wind down, come to terms with the exit from the World Cup, and then, right, here you are again. This is your job. Get back to work. And I think that's probably smart, you know, it just gives them that chance to to sort of wipe the slate clean a little bit. So I think that's that's the difference for me anyway on, uh, you know, on these players and, you know, how we get them back and how we get them back firing as quickly as possible. Yeah, I think that is one of the key differences. I also think 
I, I think basically whether these fixtures were being played in Qatar, whether they were being played in the Premier League, what do we associate with playing football at this particular time of year, November, December? Often it's injuries and mm. a need to rotate. And that's sort of what I alluded to in part one when I said the true test will be once the games start coming again, you know, how able are we to maintain the players' fitness um, against a busy, busy schedule? So I, I don't think it's like markedly worse than him having stayed here and played a bunch of Premier League games. But I think were that the case, we'd all be saying, Saka's going to need a rest eventually. When's the injury going to come? Do you know what I mean? We were paranoid about that before the World Cup. Yeah. Um, we'll be paranoid about it after the World Cup. Uh, it's kind of our nature as, as fans, I think, to worry about this stuff. But yeah, I, I think um, there's a big psychological component too. And hopefully that week off, as you suggest, provides that buffer the players need to be able to refocus on the task at hand. Sure. Okay. Let me ask you this one uh, from Para. Uh, he is on the Discord and he says, Goodly morning. Really appreciate the banter, the bants regarding Cristiano Ronaldo. But how do you feel about the offensive Argentine team? Really find it hard to support uh, such an unsportsmanlike team. Any thoughts? And this kind of goes into what you were saying a few minutes before the break. Well, yeah, I mean... I so I, I gather that, you know, Argentina upset a lot of people with their reaction at full time. Um, but from what I could see, Holland were at least playing their part in terms of sort of <laughs> trying to put players off when they were walking up to take the penalties and things like that. Um, so I, I, I'm not that sort of exercised about it. I mean, Argentina team engaging in gamesmanship... I mean, it's sort of no news to anybody. Um, so they're not my favourites. You know, they're not the most lovable team in the tournament, but I equally, I get it. What about you? I kind of love it. Right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, I, you know, I think it is it is absolutely right to point out that there was a pair of them in it in terms of the, the penalty shootout, trying to put yeah, each other off. Sure. And, like, why not? Why not? This is like top-level sport, and I'm all for sportsmanship and a handshake at the end of the game. But at the same time, when you're out there and you want to win, you'll do everything possible within your power to help you win. And it's a tiny little bit of the the the, the big story, if you like, you know? The attempts to put a player off before he's taking a penalty, that's just part and parcel of what you have to deal with. You know, and I think we also forget, you know, that there are probably things that go on on the sidelines, on the benches, maybe a bit of history between two teams, history between, I don't know, a, a star player and an, uh, a veteran manager. You know, all of these things play into your pregame motivations, right? Like it's, it's that. It's the same thing like when – what's that story Lee Dixon tells about, you know, his first North London derby and Tony Adams and somebody else, they pin him up against the wall to tell him just how important this game is, right? Yeah. So if we're Arsenal fans and we see our players do Argentinian – in inverted commas – do Argentinian stuff to Tottenham, we love it. You yeah. know, why wouldn't we love it? Especially if, you know, they miss penalties in a penalty shootout and we win. What way are you going to celebrate? You're going to celebrate right in their faces. And I just think that's part and parcel of the game. I think there are aspects of football that are better because 
more care and attention is paid to them when it comes to things like player welfare and, and um, you know, the way you can tackle in the game now. It's It's got to be cleaner. And I think those are good things. But I also think that in a, in a world where so much revolves around that sort of corporate uh, sponsorships and like some of it has become a little bit sanitized. Mm-hmm. And I think stuff like this is fucking great, particularly as a neutral, you know, you're looking on at these games and it doesn't really matter to me who wins. It doesn't really matter to me who loses. But if I'm entertained along the way, then I'm absolutely down with it. And I would like to see quite a lot more of it between now and the end of the tournament. So bring it on. Yeah, I think as Arsenal fans, you know, in terms of the post-game stuff, we know better than anyone that you don't need to uh, police mm. how people celebrate. Um, okay, let's have another question. Oh, well, listen, speaking of sort of post-game and, and referencing uh, what we talked about at the end of part one, uh, John Hussain says, petty and small-minded with a big dose of schadenfreude, but whose tears have you enjoyed the most? Suarez, Ronaldo, Neymar, or Kane? Just put them all in a big bucket. I'll drink. <laughs> I'll just drink the cocktail. Down it. Just down the whole lot. Um, who's? I think probably Ronaldo. Yeah, it's Ronaldo I for me. It's Ronaldo. If I had to do it, it would be Ronaldo... Suarez, Neymar, Kane, which isn't to say like I'm behind Kane, but part of the collateral damage of the Kane one is Saka. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to think about him being sad. So, um, yeah, that would be it. I mean, we have another slightly, um, uh, question along the lines of that, uh, Nett on the Discord said, Evening, gentlemen. If you had to pick three players who you'd love to watch cry or just be inconsolably sad after being eliminated from a tournament, who would they be? I'm thinking of all time. All time. Mm. I mean, yeah, because this tournament's given us the inconsolably sad Ronaldo. That would be my number one choice, and Bruno Fernandes wouldn't be far behind. Oh, yeah. Did you see him talking about, like, how it was definitely a penalty? I would never go down in that position. It's a you know... And you look at the replay and he just falls over. He jumps in the air. He, it's yeah. a dive. And I mean, a, whatever about a dive, every football team, every fan of every football team has seen a player on their side take a dive every now and again, you know, and it's not the worst thing in the world. But like to just stand there and completely lie about it when the video evidence <laughs> just makes you a big liar. Yeah, he's, he's one I would go for as well. Footballers are going to be gutted when they find out about replays and television <laughs> coverage aren't 8, 8k slow-mo what shit yeah, why did nobody they tell never us knew. they never knew um who else would be right up there i mean i'm sorry england fans but john terry john terry ruth van nisselroy <laughs> uh digging think, deep into the archives here james yeah i know but i think that if you if you look back over time They'd be two of the big antagonists for Arsenal. Um, Malcolm Christie. Malcolm Christie, of course. <laughs> Neil yeah, Miller. Yeah, he's everyone's number one, really. <laughs> um, yeah, Van Nistelrooy's sort of 
difficult to look past. Actually, I couldn't abide him as a player. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's just so many to choose from, actually, and we've had you know some of the best so far in this tournament. So, um, right. Have you got a question? Or will I yes, yeah. let's have one. Um, so. Uh, okay, this question here about um, William Saliba from Jimmy Charles Moody on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy says, despite arguably being France's most informed centre-back, Saliba's clearly down the pecking order for his country. Is this positive, as he's being hidden from the world stage, or negative that he may think he has to join one of the big boys to get game time for his country? Good question, that. Um, I mean... I don't think uh, the last part of the question was, was, does he need to join a big club? And I'm not sure, well, he's at a big club, let's face it. But I know what the question is sort of suggesting. I think the thing is that, like, where he's been playing this season is where Varane plays for France. Mm -hmm. And I can understand using the experience, uh, you know, of Varane, who's been an amazing defender uh, until he came to Manchester United. But he's got a lot of experience and goodwill in the bank, right? Mm-hmm. I thought Upamecano was... I didn't think he was very good yesterday against England. Um, no, nor did I, actually. I thought yeah. he was very impatient, yeah. sort of like trying to jump out of his box. Yeah. Um, so if he's got like a little bit of a, a gripe about this World Cup, it might be that he's not going to play because in place of... Upamecano, but that's not where, you know, he's been playing naturally um, for Arsenal. Uh, Is it good that he's been hidden away? I mean, we forget how big and popular the Premier League is as a product. And even though all the world is watching the World Cup, pretty much all the world watches the Premier League as well. I mean, I don't mean all the world, but I think it's a very, very widely watched league across the globe, right? Yeah. So people will have already seen what William Saliba is capable of and what he's done for Arsenal this season. Um, I mean, maybe it just sort of is another thing that motivates him, another little aspect to the early part of his career, which can give him the kind of motivation he needs to take forward. You know, like his start at Arsenal was not particularly positive. And I think he's said since that um, that's been a not necessarily a good thing for him, but, you know, something that he's been able to to learn from, that football is not always easy. Football, you know, is a challenge, is a is a thing that you have to work for. Um so maybe maybe that aspect of it will be a positive for us. Um, I suppose the the other thing is that you know he's not going to come back uh, particularly fatigued, having not really played at the well. He hasn't played at all, has he? Uh, did he come on in one game? I think he came on in one game. Um. So no, I mean I don't worry too much about it on any level. Really, I think he's. I think his target was to make the World Cup squad and whether he thought he was going to start games, I don't know. But um, I guess the experience will make him want more and to make sure that he gets it, he's going to have to keep playing at the level he's been playing at for Arsenal. So um, I don't really worry. What about you? Yeah, I think it's worth remembering that probably a year or so ago, 
he was no, by no means a certainty to make the World Cup squad and he fought his way through a lot of competition to make that squad. Um, and also France underwent a formation change of plan. It looked like they were going to be lining up in the World Cup with a back three. I think that would have given him a real chance of playing on mm. that right-hand side. Um, they ended up going with a four predominantly and he's a less obvious fit with Varane there. But I'm sure he'll be looking at it and thinking, you know, Rafael Varane's 29, it'll be 30 before the end of the season. Um, you know, be looking at the Euros and the World Cup, especially beyond that in four years' time, thinking I should be in my peak, in my prime at that particular point. So he'll be targeting that, I imagine. This will have been a uh, an experience for him. and I'm sure he'd be glad to be there. I'm sure he'd wish he'd played more, but mm. I don't think it's a bad thing. And I think, no. um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing him again in an Arsenal shirt before too long. Here's one from Ken Moody, who's at Ken underscore Moody on Twitter. He said, what impact do you think his England experience will have on Ben White? How bad must it have been for him to come or be sent home? A player that Bielsa, Potter and Arteta picked every week. I just don't get it. Do you think there will be any kind of a World Cup hangover for Ben White? Or or like Saliba, do you think perhaps he's sort of going to come back where he is appreciated and um, where he is going to play, where he's got that? that sort of trust of the manager. Yeah. I mean, sometimes if things don't go to plan on the international stage, your club becomes a refuge, you know, and, you know, I, th- I think of Bukayo Saka, for example, and what he experienced in the Euros last summer, and then the way in which Arsenal welcomed him back. And I think it's deepened his connection to the club. Um, I think Ben White, you know, he's been dealing with a personal situation as the statements from club and country made clear. Um, there was a story uh, in the Daily Star about a, a row between uh, White and the England coaching staff. But I think that would be part of a bigger picture, really. Um, I guess I worry about it in the same I worry about every same way I worry about every player coming back from the World Cup in terms of where their attention, where their focus you know, how ready they're going to be for the results of the Premier League season. But I do think that Ben White is happiest playing club football. And I think he loves and relishes playing for Arsenal and Mikel Arteta. Mm. And I think he'll probably be very driven and determined and focused to get back to doing that and enjoying what is his, his day job, you know, his thing he does week in, week out. Um, so... I worry about it a little bit because it's human and it's normal, but I don't doubt he has the uh, resilience and the quality to mean that he can perform when called upon. Mm. What do you think? I think probably much the same as you, that like anything that, like to leave a tournament in the middle of it is, is it's not that it's unprecedented, but obviously it's not ideal. Uh, for the player or for, you know, the the team that is losing that player. So something has happened. All you can do is hope that he's got the the necessary support and the ability then to sort of deal with whatever that was. Like you, I think there's a bigger picture here that we probably won't um, get to find out about. I think the, the, the personal reasons aspect of it is is just that. It's personal. I don't think there's a like a smoking gun that's going to emerge or anything like that. But I'm confident that he has got what it takes to just sort of pick up where he left off. I think he is that kind of character, you know? I think he... 
from the interviews you see, from the way you hear him talk, like, I think he's quite sanguine about football as an industry, if that makes sense. Like, he yeah. knows what it is. Like, he happens to be really, really good at a thing which lots of people love, but which in itself is just a really weird kind of industry, you know, because of all the bits and pieces that go on and the demands and the external factors and internal factors and all that kind of stuff. And I think he is quite able to take distance between, you know, himself and his role in in football, in the game itself. So I think I'm pretty confident that he's going to be able to just crack on once he comes back. Let's hope so, because, yeah, we, we definitely need him. Mm. Um, one of our outstanding players of the season so far. For sure. Uh, Nicholas Alm on Twitter asked or said, I read quotes from Saka saying how he was sorry he's never gotten to meet Arsene Wenger. Isn't that baffling, considering Saka was in our academy during Wenger's last year? Also, have we come to a point where Arsenal returning, if only for a visit, is becoming a priority? I was surprised by that, I have to say. I, I think my timelines have sort of blurred a bit in my mind. I was like, oh, he's never met Wenger. Wow. That is strange. Mm. You know, for a player who was clearly a big talent in the academy, um, when did he make his Arsenal debut? In... November 2018. So uh, a, a matter of months after. A matter of months after. Arsene's departure. Yeah. Um, it is surprising because, you know, we... I just wonder if the last few months of Arsene Wenger's, or last year maybe... Like, even when there were international breaks, you'd see things like academy players training with the first team to make up the numbers, you know? Yeah. And I'm just surprised that in all of those times, all of those opportunities, he wasn't one of the players that came across to to train. Um, yeah, and, and to be honest, I'm so surprised that I'm sort of questioning whether that's even true. But you'd think as like a 15 or 16-year-old, if you met Arsene Wenger, you'd remember it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I think, did Arsene Wenger talk about it? Uh, I think there's some quotes here from Arsene Wenger. Let me just see if I can bang them up. It, it is odd because boom, boom, boom. I guess the fact that it coincides, Saka's emergence as a talent coincides mm. with kind of the end of Arsene is probably relevant. Because if Arsene felt he was going to be at the club for another two or three years, you know, it wasn't uncommon for him to roll out the red carpet for a young player, you know, yeah. meet the family, to convince them they've got a future at the club. Um, that was relatively common practice at one point. Yeah. Um, Wenger said, uh, or told Lekeep when um, Saka had said what he said, that's very nice of him. We'll end up meeting each other one day, of course. I'm happy about his development, the fact he's still playing at Arsenal. I was told about him when I was still at the club. He was one of two or three young guys who were coming through. I heard very good things about him. Um, so it does seem obviously true that they haven't met, which is a surprise. Um, as for whether Arsene Wenger will return to Arsenal or not, um, I at this point, I would suggest a meeting between Saka and Wenger will probably happen outside of Arsenal. That feels most likely, doesn't yeah. it? Rather than it happening when 
or if Arsene comes back? I, I'd say the chance of them meeting elsewhere mm. first seem greater. They do, um, yeah. They do. And I do think that, you know, we've talked about this many times, but Edu and Arteta have really said all the right things about Arsene and um, made all the right noises. And I strongly get the sense the ball is kind of in his court as to, you know, how, if and how he might uh, revisit the club. Mm. Um, I'm sure he would be incredibly welcome. Um, I think it's sort of in his hands, really, how he yeah. chooses to deal with that. I don't expect it to happen anytime soon, mm. to be honest. Mm. Um, okay, here's a question. Uh, from BF Jesus on the Discord, who says, outside of a magical knee repair for Gabriel Jesus, what do you think is at the top of Arteta's holiday wish list? Beyond, you know, the big box of roses and after sure. eights and... Um, socks, new socks. socks. Yeah, of course. Um, holiday wish list. Let me put it another way. Do you think the injury to Gabriel Jesus will impact what Arsenal do in the January transfer window? And I, I realise that's, kind of, uh, that's kind of a broad question because yeah. it may or may not directly impact what they do, but do you think it will, it will play a part in whatever decisions they make? That perhaps, let's say they're going, maybe we won't do the winger now, we'll do it in the summer. Do you think something like the Jesus injury would make them more likely to go down that direction in January than if they were maybe thinking of biding their time? I think it impacts the urgency, if you see what I mean. Mm. I think it impacts how the priority of doing it now. Um, I'm not convinced it means they'll pivot in terms of sort of positional targets because I do think they'll be looking at the composition of the broader squad. Um, I, this is my opinion. I don't know this yet as fact, but I would not be surprised, for example, if, you know, before the Jesus injury, the prime target was a, a wide player. And after the Jesus injury, that remains the case. I'm not convinced that an absence of two or three months will make them go, we must buy a centre forward. Mm. Um I might be wrong about that, but that's just my read on the situation based on sort of how they've behaved previously. Um, but I think it might it might influence, as I say, the urgency, the imperative, because I think actually a wide player still makes a ton of sense. I mean, in, you know, one of the things I think that's going to be really interesting about Jesus's um, injury is how willing is Mikel going to be to try options other than Eddie and Ketia? You know, I'm sure Eddie will get his chances, yeah. but there are other players in that squad who I'd be very intrigued to see play through the middle. I mean, for example, Gabriel Martinelli, if you were looking for a striker who could replicate the work rate, uh, the ability to carry the ball, the goal threat, you know, Martinelli really, really, I think, does have a lot of those similar sort of tigerish centre-forward traits. Yeah. I, th um, I think that's kind of dependent, though, on having somebody else for the left-hand side, whether that's a fit again Emile Smith-Rowe or whether that's a, a signing. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it does depend. Or both. Or yeah, both. because, look, 
there's no way Eddie can play every minute of every game. No yep. chance. We have to take into consideration the, the, the depth that we have. And if he thinks that with another wide player, he can use Martinelli as a center forward, or he can use Smith Rowe as a false nine, or whatever that might be, if that gives him the depth to do that, and he's happy enough to to wait for Gabriel Jesus to be fit again in you know February or March or whatever it might be, then I think that's probably more likely than Arsenal going out and signing some kind of a, a striker. So, I mean, we had a lot of people, um, uh, Gunnar works on the Discord, was saying, what about a loan move for Memphis Depay? I've seen his name come up a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, do you think that might be something they would consider, a loan move for a striker? Or is the priority just doing what they think they uh, they needed to do anyway in January and then you you sort of cope with what you've got based on, you know, what is in essence then a stronger squad, even if you're missing one of the key pieces? I don't hate the Memphis idea. I have to be honest about that. I... I I think that he's a very gifted player and if you could get them on loan, there would be some merit to that. I do look at him and sort of think, is he a fit for the project? I mean, I'm not sure about that. You know, when I look at just sort of age profile, personality profile, is he an Arteta type of signing? Mm. Not not sure. He feels a bit um, glitzy, if that makes any sense, uh, (laughs) for Arteta's tastes. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, you make a good point about all the games, you know, this period, if we assume Jesus is going to miss a few months, which after surgery, I think is a, you know, a conservative estimation, to be honest. Um, we've got an FA Cup campaign to consider. We've got the resumption of the Europa League, probably within that time period, mm. as well as all these Premier League games we've got to make up between now and the end of the season. So... Eddie can't play every game. Someone else is going to have to. Um, I just think that, yeah, if, if you've invested in a big contract for Eddie at the end of last season to be your backup centre forward and your primary centre forward picks up an injury that's not super long term, I don't know. I almost feel like if you're not giving those minutes to that player, <clears throat> then what were you doing? Do you know what, what were I mean? you thinking? Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, presumably it was done on the basis that we feel he can step into the breach if required. And in, in fairness to Eddie, when he did step into the breach at the end of last season, he did do pretty well, albeit for mm. a short run. Um, I, I, I think that Eddie, if he plays these games, will score a decent rate of goals maybe even a better rate of goals than Jesus has managed over the last, uh, well, you know, 10 league games. That won't be difficult. Um, but it's going to be the other areas of the game, isn't it? It's going to be the the link play, the pressing, yeah. the, the level of defensive work, and also just the leadership qualities that Jesus brings, the kind of intangible factors, the fact that he knows what it takes to win. Um, they're the things I think that we're going to miss most of all. Mm. Yeah, it will be fascinating to see what they do because I don't think you can, whatever way they solve is not the right word, but whatever they come up with, right, you can't not react to the injury to Jesus. You just can't do, you can't just sort of say, well, we've got enough. 
I don't think you can. I think this is a, a, a squad that Mikel Arteta himself would say needs a bit more firepower. I mean, he said that in the summer. That's what he was looking for. And then I do wonder if what happened in the summer might be part of why they won't deviate from the plan. Mm-hmm. Because they deviated from the plan in the summer to react to the injuries to Party and El Neni, and didn't get what they needed to get done done. So I just wonder if this time around, they're saying, "Okay, well we had the plan. This is not what we were expecting. This is far from ideal, obviously, but let's focus on what we were, you know, gonna do anyway, and then we can, if not muddle through at centre forward." Um. You know, we've we've got those internal solutions, if you like. Yeah, um, I, I still think there's, you know, I still think there is a case to be made that a different kind of centre forward um, would round out the squad. And I don't, I don't hugely get the sense that uh, Arteta and Edu agree with that idea. But I do think, you know, in a league where you're allowed, what is it, nine subs now? Mm. Um, have you got room in there for, you know, more of a target man or someone who plays centre-forward in a very different way that enables you to tactically change things? Um, I think there probably is room for that in the Arsenal squad. And if that was a component that they did feel they wanted, then maybe there would be a case to go and do that. Mm. Um, but I, I don't hugely get the sense that that's the, the way they're thinking about it at the present point in time. Uh, okay. Um, whose question is it? Mine or yours? I'm not sure. I think actually. I just asked you that one about the January. Yeah, that makes sense. Window. Um, I had the one about Ben White, but we've done that. I mean, yeah. J Mark ninety one said, "Morning, gents. What do you think of the rumours of uh, Evan and Dicker to us on a free in the summer? Have you seen those? In fact, yeah. I know you've seen those. Are we going to get Indica up the arse? I think that's the question we're all <laughs> <Wow>. asking. <laughs> um, we could, well, fingers crossed. That's my Christmas wish. <laughs> oh, hang on. Did we answer that? The Christmas wish becomes Christmas wish. Well, I, I think you will want a wide player. That would be... Yeah, I think I that, that I would think be that top will of remain his, the priority yeah, as well. I think that would be Arteta's holiday wish list. Um yeah, I mean, uh, Ndika is a left-footed centre-half who's available on a free transfer in the summer, I believe. And I think we have been linked with him before. Whether yeah. or not um, our interest is real now, I just I just don't know. But I do think that, you know, given the selection of Gabriel in pretty much every game that he is available for, he plays, right? We know Mikel Arteta really likes a left-footed central defender uh, on the left of his two. And we've only got one of them. So on that basis, I would say it's probably, you know, credible in terms of the profile of the player, but whether or not it's that particular player, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, that's how I see it as well. I, I don't, uh, I don't know if, they're aware, I know they're aware of Ndika, but I don't know if it's developed to the point where they would actually consider him a serious target. Mm. Um, but I do think that particular position is something they may look at. You know, when they were looking at Lissandro Martinez, one of the advantages they saw in him is that he could have also slotted into left-sided centre-back if required, uh, as well as being a left-back, potentially. Um, Pablo Marie obviously sort of didn't, hasn't really 
worked out and it's likely he'll leave the club permanently before too long. Um, so I think a left-sided centre-back will be on the agenda. I am still curious if we'll ever really see Tommy Asu play in that position for Arsenal. Um, mm. I'd like to see it. Uh, and with Ben White doing so well at right back, the chances of that feel like they increase a little bit. But uh, yeah, I think that would be an area to keep an eye on. Maybe not in January, but maybe as the report suggests in the summer. Yeah, in the summer. Okay, here's one from Fleds on the Discord. It says, good evening. Which one of these three would you pick for Arsenal? One, Musiala. Two, Gvardiol. Or three, Bellingham. <laughs> well, I'd pick Jude Bellingham. Um, I don't really know where the idea that Arsenal might be in for Bellingham sort of began. It honestly feels like something, a sort of social media phenomenon that Arsenal fans have wished into existence. But I mean, you know, I, I, I get it from the point of view of like, why wouldn't we be interested? Why wouldn't we want a player no, of, of that talent? Of course. But realistically, can we compete with the kind of offers that Dortmund are going to get for him I, I, I'd be really surprised. Like, I, I think Arsenal would be entirely foolish if they didn't at least explore the possibility that, you know, 19, 20-year-old Jude Bellingham might be interested in joining an exciting project with, you know, some England teammates like uh, Ramsdale, like Saka, like, you know, Ben White briefly, maybe Emil Smith-Rowe if he gets back in there. Why wouldn't we try at least and, and just sort of dip our toe in the water but I think the the reality is um, it's going to be beyond us to to give Dortmund the amount of cash that they want, and also you know to compete with the kind of offers that are going to be made from elsewhere. I think that's probably true. I think the front runners in this race for a long time have been uh, Liverpool and Real Madrid. Um, but I suspect more and more clubs will get involved in that tug of war based on his performances in the World Cup. I mean, mm. he's a really, really outstanding young player, 19. Plays like he's about 10 years older than that already. Mm. Um, can do it all. And I think it's had a really huge impact on the England team, would have a big impact on the Arsenal team. I have to be honest and say, I don't think it's enormously realistic but, you know, it'd be nice if we had a go. I suppose it'd be a bit like when Arsenal bid for Mbappe against Paris and um, <laughs> Real Madrid. Do you know what I mean? Like, they they stuck their hand up and had a go. I, listen, Arsenal are a really attractive club. They're a really attractive club to join. Yeah. Great project, great manager, likely to have Champions League football again next season. You get to live in London. Um, it's in the Premier League. Great. Um, <clears throat> I just feel like... I guess a bit like Haaland, like Bellingham is approaching that point where he's going to go for very, 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 very high prices all round. And he's probably want to go and play somewhere where, I don't know, he's going to win. Not, he's going to almost guarantee himself a certain level of success in his career. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think 12 months ago, if you were to suggest it, and look, I think he's like Saka, but probably even to a greater extent, I think Bellingham's star has risen during this tournament. And you can understand why he's just a superb player. And at 19 years of age, to have the the assurance and the composure that he has, I think is is something else. Um, 
And I think probably, you know, 12 months ago, we would have had zero chance of attracting a player that good. Yeah, that's true. Right? And now I think you could make a good, a good case for it. And I can imagine that maybe, like, Arsenal could be an attractive destination to Jude Bellingham. But, you know, when the other offers come in, if it's someone like Real Madrid, I mean, that's that's kind of hard. I mean, the other thing as well is I think Haaland, when you look at his actual transfer fee, it's not ridiculous. Well, it was determined by a clause. Yeah, so there was a clause in his contract which made the transfer fee, I think, um, in the ballpark of most big clubs and what they're capable of putting together in terms of a package. What I don't think was within reach was the wage that yeah, he is on. Yeah, and the fees. And the, exactly, the agent's fees, his weekly, his bonuses, all of those kinds of things, I think are probably only within the remit of someone like Man City, you know, who, who have these endless resources, you know? So that, I think, might well be a factor when it comes to the, the Bellingham, uh, whatever transfer he makes, whether he goes next summer or whatever, I don't quite know, but um, strike while the iron is hot and all that kind of stuff. There are some interesting players in that England midfield who are going to move. I mean, Bellingham, I think, is one probably next summer. I think we'll be, I think we'll be talking well over 100 million euros, uh, probably. Mm-hmm. And then I think Declan Rice has made it really clear that he wants to play Champions League football and has almost no chance of doing that with West Ham next season. I thought, to be honest, he had a pretty good tournament as well. And I think he's a really good player. Mm. Um, Do you think he's going to go to just back to Chelsea, Rice? I think that I've always considered that the likeliest outcome, but, you know, are Chelsea going to be in the Champions League next season? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, I mean, I guess he may feel, you know, with the history they have of qualifying for that tournament, albeit under different ownership, they're sort of a safe bet. But mm. I think... Uh, I think he'll move to a big, big club in the summer again for a pretty sizable chunk of money. I suppose the question for Arsenal will be to what extent do they want to go and sign those players who are already sort of established England internationals or do they try and pick up, you know, the next Rice, the next Bellingham? Um, Yeah. I don't know. I mean, what's one thing that is interesting is they've shown they are prepared to pay a premium for English talent. If you look at Ben White, Ben White, Aaron Ramsdale, they recognise that mm. there is a premium on those players, and that I guess they recognise there is a value as well. Um, so that is interesting. And the other thing, just to sort of briefly cut in, I'm sorry, it's yeah. just no, that no, you, no, you can. If you're thinking about this Arsenal team and where hopefully it's going and how it's getting there, right? Bellingham feels like a perfect addition, Mm -hmm. right? And when you think about what we need, when you think about our midfield, um, you know, Thomas Partey and Granit Xhaka, two experienced players, but both 30 thereabouts, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to start then thinking about your succession plan. And when you look at this World Cup, when you look at the talent that's in Europe at this moment in time, Bellingham feels absolutely the perfect fit for this current Arsenal team, which is why I think that's why there is this sort of clamour about his, in inverted commas, signing. 
uh, it's simply because everyone can see how well he would do at Arsenal. Yeah, yeah. That's Not that's all, that. you know. Not denying that. I mean, the time has been that, you know, Arsenal would have signed Bellingham when he was 16. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that mm. there was a time where that was the sort of deal we were doing, you know, going and taking him off Birmingham in the same way we took Theo Walker off Southampton. But, you know, he, Dortmund ultimately uh, took him and, and who can argue with their record as, you know, brilliant people to kind of manage young talent and put them on, give them the platform they need to get to the next level of their careers. Yeah. Um, it's, it works brilliantly for Haaland and it's worked for Bellingham. And it's going to mean that the next time Dortmund come in for an elite level 16, 17 year old, everyone's going to think very, take that off of very, very seriously. It's um, a, it's a very well managed career though. You know, Bellingham, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's very yeah. smart to do what he did. And I'm, you know, I don't want to annoy Lewis Ambrose in any way by saying that Dortmund are like a, a feeder club. That's not what I mean. I think they are willing, you know, to give these young players a chance that they probably wouldn't get it at, at Premier League level. You know, that is it. They give them this first team experience. Um, they reap the benefits on the pitch and financially as well when they move these guys on also. Um, so it's like our club's going to be brave enough to, to make the commitment to a young player like Bellingham in the future to say, okay, if you move to us, I know you've got like this option, this option, but you know, we will give you those minutes in the premier league. And maybe the other part of it is maybe the player is better for going to another league, for going to the Bundesliga, for going to another country, for learning another culture, another language, all of mm. those kinds of things that as part of your, your development, not just as a footballer, but as a person, I think is really, really smart as well. Well, everyone talks about Bellingham's maturity, you know, mm. the fact that he's, he went and played in another league at 17, that's got to be part of it, as you suggested. Yeah. The time has been that Arsenal probably could sign a teenager and say, yeah, we're going gi to give you minutes and you'll get opportunities. You know, there was a period where Arsenal could do that and probably stay in the top four to a certain extent. I'm not sure how feasible that is in the Premier League mm. today. Um, if you want to be truly competitive at the top end, I don't know how likely that is. So you probably are having to buy players who are more established, as we've seen this summer with the likes of Jesus and Zinchenko. But listen, don't get me wrong. In answer to the original question, oh, I dearly love Jude Bellingham Arsenal. Yeah, I have to say I've been really impressed with Guardiola as well, though. I yeah. think he's, um, you know, for 20 years of age, maybe we're, you know... Um, watching Saliba, you know, we're a little more open to the idea of a young defender being as, as good as that. But I think he's he's really excellent. There was a lot of talk about him and Chelsea, wasn't there? Yeah, they uh, tried to do that last summer, I think. Mm. Um, and I still think they would be front runners because basically all those lines of communication are already open. Um, yeah. But he's, he's, a, he's a top player. And to be fair, so is Musiala as well. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. He's exciting. I mean, if you're looking for a winger, if you're looking for a wide player... There's one right yeah. there. But, um, yeah, I don't think that's in any way realistic. I don't think Bayern Munich are in a rush to <laughs> get shot of it. I wouldn't have thought so. I wouldn't have thought so. All right. Look, I think we should uh, leave it there for today because it is freezing cold here in Dublin today. I don't know what it's like in... in... It's chilly. It's chilly it is really too. cold and my heating is on the fritz. And oh. I can no longer feel my toes. 
So I think I've got to get up and move around a little bit, um, lest I get frostbitten. And we don't want that. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Maybe Cristiano Ronaldo would want that for me after, <laughs> after all the things I've said about him. But. Especially because of some of the things we've said, exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, listen to you guys. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. Hope you enjoyed the show. For now, take it easy. Enjoy the rest of the weekend, and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.